morning. It is so painful to watch yourself on the screen. <laughs> Do I really look like that? Do I really talk like that, you know? And then I think, well, we've been singing about grace, so I'm okay. <laughs> we are in week number three of our Weapons of Self-Destruction series. We are looking at how the gospel of Jesus Christ enables us to overcome the downward pull of sin, personal sin, what we're calling weapons of self-destruction. So we've looked at pride, then we looked at envy, and today we're looking at how the gospel enables us to overcome our battles with anger. It was just a couple of years ago that Rhonda and I were hurrying, now let me emphasize hurrying, to northern Indiana. My mother was in ICU. She was nearing the end of her life, and we knew that. And we managed to get around Chicago fine. There wasn't any traffic. But as soon as we hit the Indiana toll road, traffic came to a screeching halt. So quickly, I said, Rhonda, look at Google Maps. And Rhonda said, well, the good news is it's only five minutes. Well, 55 minutes later, we were nowhere. And I wish I could say to you in that moment that I grabbed my lovely wife's hand and said, oh, this is wonderful, isn't it? And let's sing a couple of hymns to celebrate. <laughs> but I didn't. I was fuming. I was mad at Google Maps for saying five minutes when it's going to be an hour. I was mad at the Indiana toll road for having the audacity to do road construction. I was mad at the state of Indiana where I'm from. I was mad at Henry Ford for inventing vehicles that didn't fly. <laughs> and we call it anger. And maybe traffic isn't a problem for you. Maybe it's not traffic that makes you mad. Maybe it's your neighbor's dog that won't stop barking. <laughs> or your spouse that doesn't seem to appreciate you. Or adult child that doesn't call. Or a, a, a boss that doesn't recognize your contributions. <laughs> For some of us, our anger runs hot. We let it out. We shout. We say things we regret. But others among us, for others among us, our anger runs cold. We hold it in. We don't say much. But we struggle with bitterness, resentment, irritability. You see, one form blows up, the other form clams up. And there are rage spewers and rage containers. But all of us, in different ways and to different degrees, struggle with some form of anger. Now, maybe you're here today, and by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you've made significant progress in your battle with anger, and we affirm you. But maybe you're here today, and man, this particular thing or this set of circumstances you're going through uh, gets to you, and it's hot anger or it's cold anger. 
And so today, what I want to do, based on the power and authority of God's word, is help you to get down the road to disarming this weapon, this weapon of self-destruction. But I also want to help you help others because anger in our society is so prevalent, it's such a deal, it's such a problem, it's such a sin. And so we're gonna do this by raising and addressing three questions, all according to the Bible. And the first question is, what does the Bible teach us about anger? What is anger? And then the second question is, Why does our anger go wrong? And the third we're going to look at is, well, how can we change? How can our anger be healed by the gospel? So let's start, first of all, with what anger is. And according to the Bible, there are two forms of anger, right? There's righteous and unrighteous anger. There's good anger and bad anger. There's constructive anger and destructive anger. Now, Hot anger and cold anger are two different forms of bad anger, sinful anger. So let's start there. Let's start with bad anger. Now this morning, rather than reading one passage, we're actually going to look at nine different passages, usually on the shorter side. So what I would like to do is I would like to start with Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31, just seven words, where the Apostle Paul commands, get rid of all, all, bitterness, rage, and anger. Now, bitterness is cold anger, right? Bitterness is the jealousy of Joseph's 11 brothers. It's the irritability of Israel in the wilderness toward God, the murmuring. It's a cold, calculated resentment of the Pharisees as they plot to murder uh, Jesus. You see, bitterness always keeps score. It never forgives, it never forgets. And it stays around for way too long. The second word in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31 is the word rage. Where bitterness refers to cold anger, rage refers to hot anger. It's when we get angry too easily, when we get angry too violently. It's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount connects anger to murder. It's why Cain killed Abel, why Moses murdered the Egyptian. It's why Israel's first king, King Saul, repeatedly tried to kill uh, young David. Researchers tell us that anger, and now I'm talking bad anger, I'm talking both cold and hot anger, that anger is the most destructive of all the emotions because it spoils friendships. It splits churches. It shatters business partnerships. It fractures marriages. It alienates children. And it estranges our hearts from God. Uh, You could say, according to the Bible, because the Bible has so much to say about anger, including bad anger, that holding on to anger is sort of like drinking rat poison 
while you wait for the rat to die. In other words, it's a weapon of self-destruction. Your destruction. And you drink and you drink of that a poison. And then you know what Proverbs tells us? Look at Proverbs 19, 19. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them, and then you will have to do it. What's the last word? Again. Again and again and again. You know what Proverbs 19, 19 is teaching us? Is that anger can become addictive. That I'm angry here, and, and so I'm going to be angry there. And so Proverbs 19, 19 is telling us as we continue to imbibe this poison, we can become addicted to it. Such is the problem of anger. Well, that's bad anger. Now I want to spend even more time, as we're in this definitional first area, by uh, talking about righteous anger, good anger, constructive anger, because the Bible is so positive about anger. I, I, I mean good anger. So, for example, James 1.19 says, be slow to anger. So the biblical ideal, now catch this according to the verse, the biblical ideal isn't the absence of anger. It's being slow to anger. It's being measured in your anger, temperate in your anger, appropriate in your anger. So Paul adds in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, be angry but do not sin. Be angry at sin, but in your anger do not sin. Be angry at adultery, at abuse, at abortion at racism. Be angry at pornography, at, at poverty, at deceit, at disease, at, at, at death. But in your anger, do not sin. And so the Bible, when the Bible talks about human anger, the Bible is sophisticated. It tells us there is both bad anger and there is good anger. There is unrighteous anger and there is righteous anger. But nowhere do we see righteous anger more vividly in the scriptures than in the Bible's emphasis on the anger of God, the, the righteous, constructive, loving anger of God. What is God's anger? Well, God's anger is his response to human sin. God's anger is his glory. As a matter of fact, one of the ways to think about the Bible, I don't know if you've ever thought about the Bible uh, this way. I hadn't until recently, is that the Bible is really the story of two angers. The anger of God and the righteous anger of God and the anger of sinful, self-centered humans. Righteous anger, unrighteous anger. Now, why in the world is God angry? Well, God is angry because he wants his way. His perfect, holy, loving way. And why in the world are we angry? Because we're self-centered, sinful, fallen human beings. And we want our way. 
But our way is imperfect. Our way is unholy. Our way is so very often unloving. We first meet the anger of God in Genesis chapter 3 when he expels Adam and Eve from the garden. Out. You're done. And we first see human anger just a chapter later in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain kills his brother Abel. And such is the story of the Bible. This ongoing war, if you will, between God's anger and human anger. You see, God cannot and will not forsake his righteousness. His loving plan. He will never surrender his glory. The Bible tells us that. Uh, But our anger... It has nothing to do with God's glory. It has everything to do uh, with our glory. We do not want what God wants. We are not angry when God is angry. We are angry when God is not angry. And these two angers have become the story in many ways of the world. And so ultimately, on that hill of death outside Jerusalem, 33 A.D., the perfect, holy, righteous anger of God and the self-centered, self-absorbed anger of man collide on the back of Jesus Christ as he dies in our place as the divine sacrifice and substitute for our sin, our anger. So that the moment anyone believes in the gospel, believes in Jesus Christ, and receives Jesus Christ, and trusts Jesus as Lord and Savior, not only are we forgiven, but the power of anger in our lives is broken. And the rest of our lives, our spiritual lives, and walking with God in Jesus Christ becomes an internal battle with defeating and slaying the dragon and the beast of anger that was crucified on the cross. And what was done by Jesus, the Spirit makes real in our lives. God's anger Human anger. Another way to say this, as I'm talking about God's righteous anger, is that I want you to understand you can't have a God of love. You cannot cannot have a God of love without having a God of anger. Because anger is a form of love. Your child is attacked, and it's your anger that catapults you into action. The more a woman loves a man, the more she hates the addiction in him. Anger in its purest form is love in motion. Toward an object of love that has been threatened. This is why we have this sobering verse in Psalm 7 and verse 11 
where we are told God is a righteous judge who displays his anger, what? What? Every day. And we say, what in the world? Every day? Yes, because God in his holiness and his love and his compassion and his righteousness in his truth hates the cancer of sin that wants to destroy the human race. And such is the love of God. Anger in its purest form is love. Today, in our Western individualistic world where we emphasize personal autonomy and personal freedom, if it feels good, do it. Uh, You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. Life is all about me, myself, and I. That's the Western world, Europe, and North America that we live in today. Uh, That's what we call the plausibility structure, the values that are uh, uh, underneath everything that's taking place in our culture. In this Western individualistic culture, we are way too positive about anger. We see it in politics. We see it all over the internet. And it's like an ongoing boxing match. Uh, Because today, we live in a culture, man, if you feel it, say it. Let it out. And if somebody's getting your way and you can't get around them, then just knock them over. Tear them to shreds. But in traditional cultures, where instead of emphasizing the individual, the family is emphasized, anger is suppressed. And we're told to hold in our anger. But the Bible is more sophisticated than that. The Bible teaches neither. The Bible teaches us that there is both bad anger and good anger. And nowhere do we see righteous anger more vividly than in the person, the character, and the works of God. In the cross, and one day, in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So that's just a a brief overview, if you will, of what anger is in the Bible, the different forms of anger. Now let me go on to the second question, this important question. Well, why is it that our anger so often, sometimes so quickly goes wrong? And let me go to Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 3. I want you to look at this short little clause. A fool's mouth lashes out with pride. Now, we don't expect it to say pride. We expect it to say anger. A fool's mouth lashes lashes out with anger. It's almost an idiom in our our culture today. Uh, But instead of anger, there's pride. And so the question we ask of the text is why? Why is pride there instead of anger? And the answer is anger is the fin, but pride, our self-centered desires, is the shark underneath the water, underneath the fin. And it's our desire to exalt ourselves, our desire to have it our way. Our desire to be seen a certain way, to be seen as superior, competent, together. And that's why the fool lashes out 
in pride because there the text is talking about the shark, not about the fin. So the point of the proverb is when our self-centered, prideful desires and wants are threatened, we lash out in anger. Uh, one of the ways to think about anger is that anger is a self-centered response to a blocked goal. A self-centered response to a blocked desire. A, a, a blocked it that you think you, you've got to have. So a wife wants to be heard and understood. A husband wants sexual intimacy. An employee wants to be recognized. A single adult wants a boyfriend, a girlfriend. And all of those are perfectly legitimate, normal desires. But when you become angry because it's blocked or it's not happening, then that anger is revealing the shark under the surface, the pride, the self-centeredness, that your desires are out of whack because that legitimate thing you have turned into an ultimate thing, and we call that an idol, and you can't live without it, and you're angry. And we do that with big things. We do that with little things. Our anger goes wrong because our desires are wrong. And nowhere do we see this more vividly in James chapter 4. So look at these first two verses in James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Now go back to verse 1. Look at verse 1. Let's keep it up there. We have two sentences in verse 1, uh, two rhetorical questions, which really are statements. And in the first, we have the fin, the fights and the quarrels, what's above ground, what's above the surface of the water. And then in the second sentence, we have the shark. What's the shark? The shark are your desires, your self-centered, your sinful desires, the battle within you. So what James is saying, and I want you to get this, is that we have an anger problem because we have a desire problem because our desires are out of whack and because we desire the wrong thing. Now this is reinforced when you understand that the Greek word behind the English word desire is a very strong Greek word. It's a compound word, and it means a strong desire, actually a desire in overdrive. It's taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing, and therefore you tell yourself, if I can't have this in this moment, if she's not going to talk to me like this, if this is not going to happen, if this train comes along and interrupts my day, then I'm angry. There is nothing wrong with wanting to be understood. There is nothing wrong with sexual intimacy in the context of marriage. There is nothing wrong in wanting to be recognized or respected, to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but when that good thing becomes an ultimate thing, we get angry. And one of the ways you can tell that you have idols in your heart is by your anger. And that's the point of James chapter 4, 
in verses 1 and 2. And actually, this was exactly my problem on the Indiana toll road. Right? I mean, I wanted to be in my hometown, Elkhart, Indiana, by 3.30 in the afternoon. My brother was in town. He'd come from out of state. We were going to meet. We were going to have a family meeting. And so I was going to be there at 3.30. Now, that wasn't a word from God. That was my plan. My will. And my goal was blocked. My want, my desire was blocked. And so because in that moment I lapsed into self-focus, I laughed into a form of pride, man, I was fuming. And we did not sing hymns. Rhonda kept trying to change the subject so I'd be okay. And it's the same thing when you come home after a long day and you have this kind of ideal of the evening and all of a sudden that ideal comes crashing down and it burns and, and you know what? You're ticked off. And you may not lash out in hot anger. You may just store it in cold anger. Or it's what happens when you're snubbed. And we tend to think anger is just hot anger. No, no, no way. Anger is both cold anger and, and hot anger and, and, and you keep score. So we go through life, instead of getting angry at human trafficking, we get angry because we aren't getting our preferences. Or somebody hurt our feelings. Instead of getting angry because God's glory is being tarnished, we get angry because our needs aren't being met. So that brings me to this last question. Because our anger goes wrong, because our desires are wrong, because in all sorts of different ways, we make idols out of little things. So what do we do? How do you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, heal our anger? What, what can we say to other people to help them uh, with anger? Other people in our life that we love and we care about, maybe you're in a life group, small group with them. And step number one, I'm going to give you three steps is to admit it. Admit your anger. Uh, and by admit it, I mean you own it and you confess it. And I want to talk about confession, and I want you to hear me in this, because I think confession is increasingly becoming a lost art in the evangelical church in the United States. So look at 1 John chapter 1, and let's read two verses beginning in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, we have an interesting verbal form in the Greek, but essentially what we have in verse 9 is a command, a command to confess your sin. Do you know what denial is? Denial is the refusal to accept the truth because the truth is too painful. John is saying in verses 8 and 9, give up. He, he's pleading with us as followers of Christ to give up the denial, to admit your cold anger, 
God, I, I, I want to come before you and I want to confess to you and I did it yesterday and I'm going to do it again tomorrow. I want to confess to you that I am so bitter toward my dad. John is saying you bring and regularly bring your hot anger. God, when she or he says that or does that, man, it's a trigger in my life and there's something inside of me that, that just erupts. God, would you forgive me? I confess it to you. I'll be back tomorrow with the same thing. I happen to think there is way too little confession in our lives as believers. Now, there's two things that help me in this area of admitting it and confessing it. And I share this, these with you uh, in order to help you. The first thing that helps me move toward confession, move toward owning my pathology before God, my sin, is that I know I am completely and totally secure in Jesus Christ. That when Jesus died for me, he totally forgave me, he completely accepts me, and he will never let me go. I know that there is nothing I can do to merit more of God's love. There's nothing I can do to lose God's love by my, because my security, my standing before God has nothing to do with me. It has everything to, to do with what Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen? And I want to suggest to you the reason we pretend, and I don't want you to do this, the reason we don't confess sin is because we fail to understand how deeply we are loved. And let me say it differently. Let me say it more positively. To the extent we understand how secure we are, how forgiven we are, that God's throne is a throne of grace. It's not a throne of condemnation for us in Jesus Christ. We are free. God, here I am for the thousandth time. But according to your word, this is a sin, and I'm going to confess, and I'm going to own it. I, I want you to know that confession is a daily part of my spiritual discipline, and I want that for you, for all of you. So my security in Christ enables, creates the platform, creates the, the basement, if you will, for my ability to be open, to be honest, and not to pretend. The second thing that helps me is to recognize that I'm just as sinful, I'm just as broken, I'm just as much a lawbreaker as the person I'm angry at or the, you know, the it that they have created. And what that does is it, it reduces this innate feeling of pride and superiority and it levels the playing field and it helps me get to honesty. Let me say it this way. It's not our weakness that keeps us from confession. It's our delusion of strength. And our strength is not in ourselves. It's in our standing in Jesus Christ. So as we sung, as Steve just let us, we can be open, we confess. And we admit it. That's step one. Step number two is after we admit it, the second thing we do is we analyze it. And this is like a portion out of my journal. This is how I'm living my life these days. And you analyze both what's underneath 
your outburst or your bitterness. You analyze the shark, and then you also analyze what's above it, what's above the water, if you will. So when I mean analyze it, you ask yourself the question, well, why, does this, uh, why is this a trigger? Or why is this resentment there? Is it, is it envy? Is it, is it pride? Is it my discontent with God? You see, people are angry uh, because they define a certain reality or a certain circumstance as unacceptable. This is what I wanted. Anything less is unacceptable. And then we hold others in contempt for creating an unacceptable reality. So what? Ask yourself the question, what's my unacceptable reality in this particular moment? What's the shark? Is there an idol here? Uh, uh, what's going on? But then, I, don't, I just don't go deep and, and um, o- overly focus on myself. I step back and I look above in my analysis, and what helps me more than anything else is to cling to the sovereignty of God to know that God is completely sovereign over my life. This is my Calvinism coming through. That God is in control every single moment of my life. (laughs) That God has a perfect plan for my life, and that plan involves a pain. And that helps me enormously when I begin to feel anger rising, to stop and to tell myself, you know, Rob, you are exactly where God wants you to be right now. And enjoy it. Enjoy the ride, rest in it. This is 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13. Do not be surprised, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you in order to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice. Don't be angry, rejoice. Inasmuch as you participate in uh, the sufferings of Christ, And so here's what I do. I memorize certain passages like this. And in those moments, man, I go back to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, and it's my self-talk. I quote it to myself, and because I've memorized it, it's right there. And I tell myself repeatedly when my anger is rising, you know what, don't be surprised. God is doing this to test you. His plan involves difficulty. He gives me regularly difficult assignments. I can be snubbed. I can be unrecognized. Uh, I don't get my way. I don't realize my, my preference, but I know I'm exactly where God wants me to be because he is growing me by testing me, and I wish that for you. I wish you would find incredible comfort in the sovereignty of God. That as much as anything has helped me in my battle with anger. And then third, you've admitted it, you've analyzed it, you've analyzed what's underneath, you've analyzed what's above, and then you transfer your anger. I mean you transfer it to Jesus. More specifically, You recognize that God in Jesus Christ on the cross took your anger and transferred it to his son. So you don't have to live that way anymore. Now let's say an adult child of yours is ungrateful, uh, doesn't much appreciate you, doesn't much communicate with you or or want really much to do with you. You have three options in that moment. You can blow up, you can clam up, or you can move in. And 
absorb the pain and continue to love without returning evil for evil. Now, do you see, men and women, uh, do you see? That's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you. Before we came to Christ, we were ungrateful. We distanced ourselves from God. We didn't much care. And God sent Jesus. After we come to Christ, it's not as extreme, but there are often those days uh, where we distance ourselves from God. We're ungrateful, and we don't that much care about spiritual things. But what has God done? God has moved in close in Jesus Christ. And Jesus bore the penalty and the agony of our anger so that we might find forgiveness and we might find freedom from anger to the extent we live in light of the gospel. And so in sum, let me just say this. Jesus Christ died not only to free you from anger, but to enable you to take up instead God's righteous anger. Let's pray. Father, we confess we're so quick to get this angry thing wrong. Uh, Forgive us for our cold anger. Forgive us for our hot anger. Help us, um, God, by your spirit and in light of the beauty and wonder of Jesus to, to change. I thank you for so many of these men and women who have seen you do wonderful things over the years in their battle with anger. Continue to do that. God, would you give us a zeal for the righteousness of God and angry and and an angry distaste for sin? Would you give us the anger of compassion that propels us to help people who are suffering sin's damage? Would you, God, give us the anger of restoration that refuses to give up, refuses to condemn, that never stops believing? And we thank you and we are amazed at your love And we pray in the great and wonderful name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.